Thanks for downloading show 109 of the C-Suite podcast, which is being recorded live online in partnership with the uh, PRCA's Global COVID-19 Communications Task Force webinar series. And in this session, uh, we will be discussing how PR agency heads can future-proof their business and explore whether more companies should be looking to move to a hybrid model of working. Uh, My name is Russell Goldsmith, and to help us explore what a post-COVID world for agencies might look like if we ever get to that, um, I'm joined by three fantastic guests from outside the PR profession. Uh, Firstly, logged on from Washington, D.C. is Jeremy Hillman, uh, Director of Corporate Communications at the World Bank. So uh, thanks so much, Jeremy, for doing this at uh, what is uh, quite early in uh, in the morning for your day. Next is Rebecca Dib-Simkin, Marketing and Product Director of Octopus Energy. And then finally, we have Applied Future. Tom Cheesewright, who in perfect timing for this show, has a new book out called Future Proof Your Business. And if you stay with us until the end, uh, you'll have a chance to win a copy. Uh, now, before we begin the conversation, I've just got one ground rule for my guests. If anyone at all uh, uses the phrases new normal or uh, unprecedented times, they will be bleeped in the on-demand edit. So with that in mind, uh, Tom, I thought if we come to you first, maybe you could set the scene for us because you consult with... Um, you know, organisations around the world. What conversations have you been having over the last few months with company leaders um, around this whole area? You know, it's been an evolving conversation. It started very much with a sense of panic. Um, people in larger organisations wanting to know how long it was going to last and you know, what their sort of approaches ought to be. Um, and smaller companies saying, just how am I going to survive this? You know, sheer panic, particularly from really small business owners. And as time's gone on, you know, people have found strategies to cope. People have, have you know, done some interesting things. They've shifted to more online business models. We know a lot of people work from home, work remotely. And now the conversation is really about one about culture. It's one about, okay, how do we take the lessons we've learned from this period in terms of the feasibility of flexible working, in terms of the way we maintain relationships with our customers or service users, and how do we capture those lessons and translate them into something positive that we can take on in a post-COVID environment? And so there's lots of conversation now about that. I think we'll get into around this hybrid working model around what are the things that have worked, what are the things that haven't, and what changes we still need to make to really make the most of some of the things we've learned over the past three months. Yeah. Uh, Rebecca, your business reached unicorn stasis just a few months ago, Um, but obviously you you only found it in 2015. So you've still got that kind of startup vibe. Um, And, you know, the organisation embraces homeworking. I was wondering, could you just quickly introduce the company for those who may not know you, but then share your working experiences through lockdown? Hello, I'm really great to be here. Uh, so I work for Octopus Energy. Octopus Energy is a, is a um, we, we supply gas and electricity to um, customers throughout England, Scotland and Wales. We've got about a million and a half customers. So we supply energy just like British Gas, but we're a little bit smaller. And we were set up four years ago. We've had incredible growth since then. Um, so I think I was employee number 34 into the business um, when we had 50,000 customers that we now said have one and a half million and 700 staff across four sites in the UK. Um, and we also have operations in Germany and Australia as well. And we recently had some investment from Australian business origin energy, which took us to unicorn tech stake status. So when we're an end tech pioneer, so we're an energy company, but we're a tech 
enabled energy company. So we we use our own proprietary tech, um, customer management system, data, billing. So actually, we've always been from the very beginning set up to work very flexibly. So all our systems are cloud-based. We've always had remote working teams as well as office teams. Um, And so actually, when, when COVID happened, when we went into lockdown, we were very easily able to you know, everybody took their laptops home on Friday night and set up again on on Monday morning. Um, and in fact, what we found over the, um, the, the first few weeks of lockdown, our customer service metrics actually went up um, because we were so well equipped to to handle remote working, um, both with our our tech and also with kind of third party communications channels that we use, like like Slack as well. So yeah, well, it's it's been it's been helpful for us to um, to have had, be tech enabled in, in the first place, and to be able to make that relatively easy switch. And what about how's the communication been between teams during the time? So we we've already um, we've relied a lot on uh, on Slack as a party system to talk to each other. Anyway, even people in an office will kind of you know chat to each other quickly rather than guessing up going to talk to each other. But one of the things that we've done since the very beginning is what to first where on a Friday night the whole business will come together where they go to the pub together and just talk about the week um, and how it went, and successes and, and failures, and, and come together. And we still do that as a business now. Um, and actually, when we started opening up our offices, we would have a Zoom call on a Friday night. We call it family dinner, where there's a few things presented from around the business is what's happened but actually it's generally informal it's fun it's community it's community based um, and actually that's worked incredibly well since lockdown so we've had kind of 500 people plus on a zoom call on a friday night that people look forward to as as, as a way of coming together and you know and, and sharing a bit of a bit of work updates and a bit of fun as well jeremy let's bring you into the uh, discussion what, what's been the world bank's response to the pandemic and, and how would you say the response from businesses in the US as compared to here in the UK and, and, and beyond? Uh, the World Bank, of course, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're a large bureaucracy. We're one of the sort of Bretton Woods institutions. Our, our organisation's about uh, 20,000 strong. Our mission is to end extreme poverty and to uh, tackle inequality, we share prosperity, as we, as we call it. And uh, so our mission right now and our work has obviously become incredibly uh, important in current times in the midst of the economic crisis, the, uh, the health crisis that so many of the countries that we're working in are facing right now. So the work has been, has been very demanding. By and large, we've transitioned pretty effectively to, uh, to home-based working. We did a survey a few weeks ago that we're just actually refreshing now, which showed that 90% of our staff feel they're productive or very productive working from home. Uh, although we have started to go back to the office in some parts of the world. So, uh, I mean, your, your second question, how are American businesses sort of uh, coping? It's a completely mixed and varied picture. I think what's emerging now is that probably SMEs, the smaller, medium-sized enterprises, uh, are having a tougher time. Uh, the, the larger organizations with deeper resources and more ability to, to react and respond uh, you know, are, are seeing opportunities and managing to mitigate some of the worst effects. Uh, but it's very, uh, it's very early days. And of course, there's a varied picture geographically across the states as well, where the virus has sort of uh, you know, had various peaks and troughs as we go on. Tom, obviously, we've spoken before today about your new book, which I thought actually provided a, a good basis for this discussion about new ways of working, and particularly focusing on this whole you know, hybrid concept. In the book, you talk about this uh, philosophical shift in business. Do you want to just share your thoughts on, on that with us? 
Yeah, yeah. I think one of the really interesting things a lot of commentators have agreed with this now is that you know what what the pandemic has done and what our response to it has done is not necessarily create anything new. There are no really obvious new trends appearing, or actually other ones stopping for that matter. What it has done is accelerated existing trends, and one of them that I started to see beforehand, but really has become you know much much greater during this process is this philosophical shift from what I call optimization to adaptation. And what I mean by that is, if I sat down with a CEO five years ago you know most of the conversation about sort of future threats and opportunity would be about how can we do better tomorrow what we did yesterday how can we avoid the disruption of our business model whereas now the conversation goes along the lines of well look disruption's going to happen right I, I can't imagine I'm going to get through the next five years of my tenure as a CEO without something dramatic happening having watched it happen in so many other industries and watching it happen to all industries throughout the course of this pandemic and so they're now coming to me and saying okay well, how do we build a business that's going to be you know, resilient? How do we build a business that's still going to have a customer base and a track record and success in a decade, two decades, rather than how do I ensure that my business isn't disrupted in the next two to five years? And it's, it's a really important philosophical shift. It's, you've seen their, their eyes shift to a, to a further horizon, and it drives a lot of other behavior change as well. It changes you know, the way people think about their organization, the way people think about their supply chain, the way people think about their people and how they train and teach them. You know, it really drives a lot of behavior change, but it starts with that philosophical shift. And it's really been brought home to a lot of people, I think, just how realistic and how, uh, you know, how quickly disruption of any industry can come about that something like COVID-19 can appear on, you know, with almost no notice and spread across the world as it has. Well, we've got representatives from uh, businesses here from over 75 years old. And as I mentioned, just five years old, um, you know, in the World Bank and, and Octopus Energy, respectively. Jeremy, have you seen this shift that, that Tom's referring to? So, look, I, I think firms have always tried to plan longer term uh, here. And, 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 and most, you know, big C, most major corporations, major CEOs, expect to be prepared for some level of disruption in most industries you know we've seen a technological revolution we've seen huge uh, huge shifts and changes i think this you know this current crisis has exposed a, a thin veneer there that, that that actually most businesses were not really prepared for what was a completely substantial shock not just to uh, not just to the external environment but to the way they actually operated within their organizations as well so some businesses may have been uh, had great business models that that, that presented opportunities and, uh, and ways to survive and thrive, but they found that potentially their IT infrastructure within their own businesses wasn't sort of well suited to be able to uh, take advantage of that. Uh, other other uh, you know businesses that may have been well set up and well prepared to weather this sort of storm actually found that their business models were disrupted so substantially that uh, you know that, that they, they were they were struggling as well. So again, it's it's a very mixed picture. It's hard to have a sort of generic answer to this, but I you know I think what what it's shown is some core values and core core areas of importance for any business right now thinking about its future. And clearly, uh, the, f- the the flexibility. Uh, you know, you know, in, uh, amazing sort of technical infrastructure, uh, a, a workforce that's adaptable. Uh, you know, nimbleness, the ability to uh, the ability to, to pivot and to shift. Uh, you know, to shift business models has been very important. So I think the ability to to respond in real time 
uh, in, in pretty fundamental ways. I think that phrase there, that phrase of veneer is really interesting. You know, one of the one of the, the stats that sticks in my head from my previous research um, is around the, the relationship between a company's strategy and a company's budget. So, you know, every year, every company of any scale puts together a strategy, says this is what we're going to do. And they put together a budget, say this is how we're going to fund it. And this is what we're expecting to make. And I working with a Canadian software company a few years ago, we surveyed CFOs and FDs around the world. And two thirds told us that their annual strategy bears, you know, some is, is in some cases only related to their budget at the highest level or not at all related. So effectively, people are saying, look, this is what we're going to do. This is our objectives, our goal. And actually, the, the quite frequently, the budget doesn't support that. And for me, that's really indicative of that veneer you talk about. People have this veneer of we're thinking about the future, we're planning for the future, but it consumes relatively little time. People put relatively little investment to it. And, and I see this regularly because I stand up on in front of companies and say, you know, you should be devoting 1% of your time to thinking about the future. And I, even with that, you know, that, that's one day every six months. And companies are still turning around to me and saying, how the hell can we free up one day every six months to focus on the future when we're so busy dealing with the day to day? I, I find that totally bizarre because I would say that probably 99% of my time is thinking about the future and how I can grow this business and set everything up to, to do that. You know, we were set up to as a to disrupt energy um, and built from the very beginning to do that. You know, our, our tech um, is incredibly enabling to do that. It also allows us to empower our people as well. So um, we have a culture of autonomy and empowerment where people can make their own decisions and their own mistakes and the company will support them. Um, and, you know, the whole mantra is to is, is to grow this business and look after customers as we do that um, or look after customers for the business so. will you be a case study for my next book <laughs> <laughs> absolutely absolutely i mean so it's kind of like you know businesses need to i mean i, I spent um, um many years before i moved to octopus i was a, another large um, energy incumbent a, a large energy incumbent a brilliant business but you know it was kind of always about trying to maintain what they had and and um you know can we get back to growth um and you know can we uh, yeah face off against disruption and, and avoid changes that are happening and you know with octopus it was like let, let's be at the absolute absolute pinnacle of it the, the, the spearhead going into it and actually it was um it was it was fascinating during covid to for us to you know have the opportunity to kind of put our money where our mouth is and show whether actually our technology and uh, and the way we try and work with our team um would actually work in, in very difficult and very stressful situations and it's not just kind of a startup talking you've got fewer customers and they're a bit more flexible than they have you know and, and have a nice get together on a friday night and so that makes everyone feel good but actually how do you take a very large business with a very large amount of people and actually show that these ways of working actually work in the most difficult situations as well and I think that's a really important point. How do you sustain that culture once you've got it? You know, very few companies manage to sustain it for five years as you've done. Yeah, you know, that culture disappears very rapidly once you start to gather any sort of scale. Uh, and to maintain it that long is really impressive, but very, very rare. One sort of question I'd love to hear from Rebecca and, and, and Tom as well, Russell, is you know, we both we've all talked a bit about growth and, and getting back to growth, but we haven't yet talked about sort of sustainability and, and the resilience of that growth as well. And I think that's probably one of the more important questions coming out of this, this crisis. And we're seeing, if you look at areas, you know, certainly, you know, relevant for importers and exporters of these hugely extended global value chains and the shocks to the global trading system, that has to be a, you know, a really important consideration. And there is clearly a danger coming out of this crisis that we 
that we throw the baby out with the bathwater and we and we really don't uh, you know we, we really don't encourage the best attributes of, 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 of powerful global value chains and get back to some system of healthy trading relationships and that we try and build that resilience uh, by by looking inwards and and sort of shrinking back and and that could present a huge cost. Well, it's, it's interesting again we're, we're kind of doing the opposite at the moment we're looking much very much outwards so you know we recently had um this investment to take us to, to unicorn status and we're using that and expanding internationally and looking at how we could take our, our model and the octopus brand um, around the world so we have a business in germany uh, we have operations in australia and we're also looking at a number of active conversations in a number of the markets to launch this business around the world you know this year um, and um you know using our tech using using our people using our approach of you know it's, it's 99 about the future as i said you know there, there's no there shouldn't be any walls between between countries and between people we think that what we talk about um in the uk so we offer cheaper greener power with excellent customer service enabled by our tech um, here and that's the message that we're, we're planning to, to take around the world and then there's still an enormous amount of interest in that I and mean, we actually landed the investment deal um, during the middle of COVID in the worst time in, in COVID because actually Origin believed in you know in the opportunity for growth and and I think it's um, I mean it's, it's obviously it, it's my business so I would say this but I think it's a great success story to show that you know businesses can still flourish um, and and still expand and still grow even in again the most difficult of times. To Jeremy's point about supply chains, you know, one of the things I've seen and the, the behaviour change I've seen, you know, it's not that the, the business leaders were ever uninterested in issues of sustainability, in issues of ethics, but it feels like that focus has been ramped up, like there is an increased lens on it now because of this 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 new shift in the horizon you know, if you're interested in the you know if you if your primary objective is delivery of results in the next two to five years the next 12 months the next quarter you have a very very different lens on the world to the one that says what's my legacy going to be when i've left the business and is it still around in 20 years and as soon as you shift your eyes to that horizon you start to think well okay you know are they going to be you know in the banking sector any more you know ppi crises am i going to leave behind the equivalent of a of a ppi crisis you know and you know, I've I've heard firsthand, you know, the CEO of a major bank being so utterly explicit with his leaders about this. You know, we cannot get even close to, you know, if you even think we're getting close to an ethical violation, not just of that scale, but of any scale. Whatever the profit potential from this is, you do not go near it. It's like we have to be cleaner than clean. We have to be, you know, incredibly ethically sound now. We cannot, you know even for the most incredible profit potential, do not dare to think about behavior like that. They're looking at their supply chains. You're looking at the manufacturing industry. They're looking at their supply chains and going, look, okay, we maybe we've, we've, we've turned a slight blind eye to this in the past, but now we have to be ultra conscious of the fact that we don't just want these people to be um, you know, happy today, but we want them to still be supporting us in 5, 10, 15, 20 years' time. And if that's going to be the case, we need to have an understanding of their environmental impact. We have to have an understanding of, the, of their impact on their local communities. And so it's, re- it, it, it's, it's not that people didn't care about these things, but they, leaders are always balancing multiple objectives, multiple stakeholders. And it just feels like when you shift your eyes to that further horizon, your the balance of your interests change and it places more 
focus on the ethics, the sustainability um, issues than perhaps was there before. This is this is all interesting stuff, um, but I need to stick to to our timing on this, and I, w- I want to get back to this area of flexible working because w- way before the, the, the pandemic, you know, companies have been um, have had flexible working, and what I was going to say is during lockdown there were certain companies like Twitter, which told all their employees, you know, they could uh, you know opt to work from home permanently. And obviously, given that this is, you know, all about PR agencies in the PR agency world, there's been virtual agency models that have, you know, worked extremely uh, successfully. There's obviously been lots of positives um, for those working from home over the last few months. So, you know, some people said they'd be more productive. Uh, there's no stress of traveling. Spending less on lunch um, is another thing. Um, but then obviously you've got to balance that with, the, you know, there's lots of People have had very different experiences, you know, working from home, uh, depending on you know whether or not they've they've got the space, for example, to to keep a kind of separate work and, and home life, you know, balance. And and also, I mean, we're doing this on on Zoom, but there's you know a lot of people have said they've had Zoom for fatigue. Um, you know, they've been stuck in front of their screen with meeting after meeting. So a very long intro to this, this question. But for those companies who are not used to that way of working, what what do you think? Are the biggest challenges that they're going to face and Rebecca I'm, I'm going to come to you on, on you know first for this one. So I think Covid has inevitably speeded up the move to a more digitally enabled work future um, so something we might have seen happen over the next 10 years or so has, has really happened over a few months which you know for in many parts is good I think more flexibility for people is good um, I think you you know people have um, a lot going on in their lives at work and at home. And I think, you know, people have found benefits from from being at home, being with their kids, being able to duck in and out of of working at at normal times and and non-normal times. And actually, the businesses that we work with, it seems to actually have kind of accepted that it doesn't really matter if someone's not around for a few hours in the morning because they're looking after the kids because they'll log in again in the evening and actually people can can work like that. Um, I think it'd be interesting to see where it's, um, settles in terms of that hybrid because certainly some people do struggle more than others in being completely remotely. Um, we use lots of different channels to communicate. So, as I said, our, our family dinner over Zoom have seen record attendance and people who wouldn't usually join because they're looking for, for some companionship. Um, and also other tools, you know, Slack, which we use as a business tool, people talk over WhatsApp quite a lot. So you know, people get kind of at different levels of social interaction, even digitally, and actually a WhatsApp conversation can feel a bit different to an email conversation or, or a Zoom conversation. But but um, but some people do do struggle as well still with just looking at a screen all the time. So, you know, we, we've tried to bring in various different initiatives, kind of buddying up and listening ear systems where we reach out to people or people know there's someone they could go to who has some some um, some training in, in, in counseling people who can kind of who can help. So. Yeah, I, I would hope that, um, you know, most businesses will find a more hybrid way of working and some will be more towards one side of the spectrum than other based on how they're enabled with with the tech and, and what their company culture is. But it's certainly been a fast forward. Jeremy, what's your thoughts? It's a big question. I, I guess the, the first question for any business is, is, is your is your business able to operate, you know, partially or substantially, you know, by remote? Obviously, there's a lot of areas, a lot of businesses, food production and others that it's just not an option. Uh, and obviously, we all have the luxury of being in sort of fairly service dominated economies where where a lot of businesses do, you know, are able to sort of port online. Uh, and then I guess for us, and I feel as the bank, we've been we've been in a good situation. It's do you have the, the IT infrastructure? Have you made all those investments over a number of years to really enable you to... Uh, uh, you know, to, to 
you know, quickly sort of port your business online uh, for the bank, certainly because, you know, we've been a business that, that lives off, off of travel to a lot of our client countries around the world. A lot of people spend a lot of time uh, out of the office anyway. We were very well set up with, with pretty robust, uh, you know, IT support and infrastructure. Uh, from a communications perspective, my team has, has almost not missed a beat. Uh, I've got a team of uh, 75, 80, and, and we're working in almost every area completely effectively uh, from home. And I've just been asked, you know, is there anyone I want to sort of send back to the office early? And it's, I'm struggling to think, I mean, maybe in a couple of areas of multimedia production, it might be helpful to have people physically together. But even then, it's, uh, uh, you know, it's not vital. Uh, so, so look, I, I think the, the work-life balance is, is the big challenge that you've mentioned. And, and that's we've seen that emerging over the last few weeks as being potentially one of the bigger issues, work-life balance, the mental health challenges, uh, and they manifest in lots of different ways. But, uh, but certainly uh, the, the inability for some to really demarcate what's work, what's home. People, I think the expression I heard was, you know, you're not sort of uh, working from home, you're living at work. And that feels to capture it to me. People don't take any, uh, any time out. Uh, they uh, and uh, uh, people are not taking their leave right now. We're seeing leave utilization, you know, that way down. Partly because people are feeling, well, if I can't travel, that's not real. That's not real leave anyway, so I won't bother uh, taking any. But it's clearly not healthy and not sustainable. And, and we've got a great sort of mental health support team and health team that's certainly seen a really big uptick, especially for staff that are living on their own or living in in small apartments and and sort of you know suffering. You know, is exacerbating all of those those pressures on others already. So I, so we're doing a lot of work right now in the bank to work out what are the tactics to really counter some of those. Uh, those effects uh, and 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 some of them are just slightly banal and and a little parochial. I mean, can you take Fridays off from meetings? Can you have email free weekends? Can you encourage all these things that we've heard about before, but maybe now they're they're, they're more important? Uh, right through to more fundamental sort of thinking about how can we shift expectations, manage performance, and and design, if you like, a new contract with staff uh where where we do sort of you know move away from the presenteeism and the hours to the to analyzing the work that gets done and really freeing staff up to genuinely work you know work from home uh in a, in a new way and not just do the work they were doing in the office at home uh it's a it's a complex sort of challenge but uh but i think if, if we're in this situation for a, a substantial amount of time we've really got to answer some of these questions it's interesting you saying about the uh not not taking your your holiday time i was due to be in canada for the last couple of weeks thankfully it got cancelled and we got all our money back which was quite incredible but um i was speaking to someone and they said oh well i, I guess you're going to take a couple of weeks off anyway and i was like Oh, I hadn't really. I just didn't. hadn't thought about it. And guess what? I've just carried on working for the last two weeks, so I haven't had that holiday anyway. Um, Tom, what, what's your thoughts on on this? Yeah, I think there are particular challenges around young members of staff. That's my biggest concern at the moment. I think there's there's a broader spread of issues around culture, things like having that cultural autonomy that Rebecca talked about at the start. It's hugely important. If you've got that and you're set up to give people autonomy and responsibility, it's much easier to let people go and work remotely. Whereas if you're used to sitting over people and you know managing them task by task, then doing that remotely is much harder. It certainly leaves managers panicking that you know are people working or are they sat on the sofa on their backsides watching another Netflix box set um, and so I think you know, it, there's, there's more than just being having a technological preparedness but nothing overcomes that challenge of young people in the workplace young people who are at the start of their career who are there to learn who maybe don't have a great home environment to, to work 
you know, I think back, you know, I started an agency environment, I actually started in a PR agency. And if I think about the, you know, the arrogant little sod I was with the, with the rough edges on me that only got knocked off by being around people with more experience, people with a bit of, you know, a few years behind them who, you know, slapped me around when I, when I did stupid stuff and, you know, worked with me till I sorted out my time management and those really basic skills like how to pick up the phone to a journalist. It's very hard to do that when one of you is in one part of the world and one of you is in another. How do you, you know, write a business email? I suppose you could collaborate on that via the cloud, but much easier just to sit there around a desk and do it together. And so for all those things, I'm, I'm really worried about this conversation about the rise of remote working because the people who can do it are people like me now, not people like I was then. You know, I've got the space to do it. I can sit in my workshop. I can isolate myself from the kids for a while uh, and I can do this very comfortably. But lots of people can't. And if all the people who are teaching are, are, you know, are off in their nice you know, villas in the Cotswolds or house in the Cotswolds, how do, how do the young people learn? Uh, well, I, I, I agree, agree with Tom on that. There's just one thing I'd love to add, which is there are some really positive effects that we're seeing as well that we shouldn't lose because if we do eventually move back to office in my organization, I don't want to lose those benefits. And we've heard from a lot of staff that they feel more included. So, so staff that used to maybe work, work remotely more often and dial in with lots of people sitting around a table in a very exclusive way, feel much more included. And, and even the, the, in terms of tackling some of the hierarchical challenges of the organization, everyone's box is the same size. You don't have the big boss sitting at the top of the table dominating the conversation. So people have felt that, that, you know, that it's leveled the playing field. They felt that the inclusion has gone up. And they're really important to capture if we do, if we do end up you know, moving back to older ways of working. Okay, um, I want to move on. We've got still lots to cover, and um, I'm conscious of time because we've been chatting for about half an hour already. Um, Tom, I want to come back to uh, to you. Um, not that this is turning into an ad for your book, but in <laughs> in, in your book, uh, you talk about this concept of um, the athletic organisation. Do you want to just explain your thinking around that? Yeah, it picks up on some of the things that we talked about today, and the idea is to try and communicate you know, what it takes to be future proof. And I, I make it you know sound a bit like. The, the, the classic traits of an athlete are the traits that you need in a future-proof organization. You know, what does an athlete have that I demonstrably don't? You know, number one, um, their senses are sharper. They seem to have a very good ability to both read the game in a strategic sense, you know, that football brain, but also that real sort of proprioception for what's going on around them and, and control their immediate environment. They've got ability to take decisions quickly, you know, to look up, to read the game, to make that 40-yard pass and drop it on the boot of the winger. But also they're trained for the game they're in. You know, the games change over a period of time. And so they're structured, their, their, their physique is fit for the sport they're in. And so, you know, my argument is that the, 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 the physique of a company that was appropriate to the game 30 years ago isn't appropriate to the physique of the game now. Just like if you took a, you know, the best footballers from the 1970s, 1980s and dropped them into the modern Premier League, they'd struggle desperately because the game's moved on. You know, the same is true with business. And so I advise companies to go and look at these different categories. You know, how do you look at the future? How, how are your senses? How well are you connected to the future and what's going on in your environment uh, and work on that? 
that and develop that. I encourage them to you know, accelerate their decision making, this sort of second pillar, and actually do some of the things that Rebecca talked about. You know, we give people autonomy and responsibility to take decisions close to the edge of the organization. And then look at the structure of their organization, get themselves into shape. And this comes back to what Jeremy was talking about in terms of this of these global networks, global supply chains, of global value chains. You know, the modern future-proof organization is very much a network. It's not a sort of tightly integrated monolith. It's closely connected to a variety of diverse partners and support it day in, day out in its activity. Rebecca, um, Tom was just hinting at, at the autonomy there. Um, do, you, do you want to just share some examples that, you know, from, from Octopus Energy and how that, that autonomy works there? Yeah, so we um, think about, I mean, I, I, I tend to think about my team at Octopus in terms of what they're spending their time doing in terms of percentages. So about 50% of what people are doing, I kind of roughly know that, um, you know, they're working on, on, on that build or that build or, or that campaign. About 25% of their time, I have absolutely no idea what they're doing because they will come up with their own stuff. And about 25% of the time, we are always ready as a team to down tools and do the next big thing. So my marketing team, we do all of our creative in-house. So my team is basic designers and front-end developers. We do everything kind of creative design, build, uh, UX, uh, media buying, everything, the whole the whole nine yards. And we, we do product development um, as well. And it means that, um, you know, I don't have a very rigid kind of uh, backlog and, and work plan that we that we run through, but actually people are really empowered to come up with their own ideas. So, for example, uh, someone in my team, our head of digital marketing, came up with an idea a few years ago to do um, a, a competition giveaway on Facebook. And we had some stuff around the office, like you do in a business, that you kind of been given, like, you know, we sponsor Arsenal sticks and Arsenal footballs and there was an Amazon Echo that we bought for something and then it was kind of in the cupboard. And um, Max was like, I know, I'm going to put it all in a big pink box and wrap it up and give it away on Facebook as, as a competition. Um, and uh, he brought this to me and I had a chat with our, our CEO, Greg, about it. Greg was like, we don't do competitions. And I'm like, oh, okay. But, you know, Max was like, I really think we should do a competition. So we kind of did it anyway. He did it anyway. And it was incredibly successful for us. We had a huge amount of engagement from it. It was one of our most successful ever acquisition campaigns. And then uh, the next year, um, Max came to us again, um, our head digital again, and said, well, I've got another idea. I think we should give away a Tesla. And we were like, really? A te-? He was like, yeah, it'll be amazing, absolutely amazing. So we were, I mean, again, made us feel almost quite uncomfortable, even though, you know, we I, I like to think of myself as pretty kind of um, flexible in, in, in what I let my team to do. But again, kind of Max almost pushed it through. You know, there were some some guidelines there that we, we we kept an eye on it. But actually, it was it was his idea. He built it pretty much entirely himself and we launched it. And again, incredibly successful because he knew that he was empowered to, to think really hard about what would actually grow this business um, and, um, and took that upon himself to, to come up with amazing ideas. Tom, we, we had a, a question in actually um, via Twitter, but it's, it's actually from Rod Cartwright, um, who's part of the PRCA's uh, Global Task Force um, sort of volunteer team. And, and, and it was carrying on this analogy of the, of the athletic organisation. It, it was quite interesting because he, he said, how can the athletic organisation prepare for the 100 metres, the 10,000 and the marathon at the same time? Yeah, I think... There's a fundamental shift in culture which helps you prepare for all three. But you know, we already have a lot of processes in place for the hundred. The hundred is like you know, the next, the next big thing. What we're working on next. And most organisations, even if they don't do it very well, as I explained with that and that, you know, that story about the the disconnect between our annual strategy and our annual budget. 
but they have the process in place. There's a lot you can do to refine those processes. You know, there's some really practical things like get your finance team out of looking at last year and get them looking at next year with a bit in a bit more depth. Take some of the load off them in terms of the, the processes of you know m- uh, manually churning through last year's results and get them focused on next year and doing some scenario planning perhaps. The, the ten thousand, you know, that's the really interesting window for me. It's you know what's the, the sort of the next two to five years? What does that look like? And that's really where this you know carving out one percent of your time to look in a structured fashion at what's next adds a huge amount of value. And that for me is the, the biggest weak point in a lot of organizations, certainly big organizations, planning approaches that, you know, what could appear on the near horizon that's utterly disruptive for our industry? And how do we turn it from a threat into an opportunity? And it is that it's that structured process, diverse views and opinions done on an iterative basis every six months at a minimum. And then that sort of thing, that you know, that the the marathon lifestyle is maybe your your third horizon, you know, beyond the next sort of seven years. And that's maybe something you don't have to think about quite so often. It's that it gets you into the realm of sort of ambitions and you know dreams and almost science fiction sometimes. Um, but you know, certainly every four or five years, it's worth doing that exercise. That maybe takes more than half a day. Maybe it takes you know a week, two weeks and a lot of engagement to reset those objectives, those missions, those goals as to where you want to be on that return. But fundamentally, if it was me, I'd be focusing on that 10,000 metres one because I think that's where most people get tripped up. Jeremy and and Rebecca, given this is being produced with PR agencies in mind, and and obviously you guys, as the uh, kind of brand owners, you you potentially work with, with agencies. Does it bother you with, you know, what working model your agency has? Jeremy, let's let's come to you. Uh, so we, we we do work with some agencies. I mean, we're, we're mostly in house. We have a large sort of communications team. But uh, look, I, I I think agencies by and large they have, you know, they've always worked uh, in this in this model. They they're able to be flexible. They they bring together teams. They're often geographically dispersed teams to work uh, work strongly uh, in different areas. They've been they're always flexible. They're always. Uh, good agencies are always very responsive to to, to their clients and uh, uh, and understand sort of changing needs and demands even you know mid uh, mid flight. So you know I, I think uh, I think we've got a lot to learn from some of the best agencies in terms of the way that they have traditionally approached their work, brought real creativity to their work as well. So uh, you know I think in, in many ways what what we are trying to do within my sort of large in house communications team is to model ourselves on some of those agency behaviors think about uh, internally across a big organization how we're really serving our clients powerfully and well how we're being flexible how we're bringing that creativity and uh, and using every ounce of technology uh, that we've got to really sort of deliver our work so uh, uh, you know I, I think uh, I think the agency model is one to, to look at Rebecca um so yeah I agree I think that agencies are already quite in this in this way of working because they're a, a team not in your office who you work with. Uh, as I said, we do all of our creative in-house. The only agency resource I use is a PR agency because I think they're essential to have that little back, black book and to have, have those slightly different skill sets. Um, but I think that when we think of our agency as, as part of our team, um, and so I wouldn't you know, cast any distinction in the way we work with them as work with them separately um, and actually sorry I'm going to slightly segue but it is relevant onto the chat panel because I was thinking about the question from Andy about practical activities to overcome 
you know, earwigging on young people's development. And I'm going to I would slightly disagree with Tom. I know what you mean. There's nothing there's nothing formally that kind of completely replaces that face to face, you know, element that you have with people. But actually, there are a number of digital channels that you can use. And I think it's really important that you use all of them. And what I found that during lockdown, so I've um, been delighted to remove my four hour daily commute. So I've had more time and I have really tried to use that time in connecting with my team and more junior members of my team one to one to spend more time with them. And that's a mix of channels. So it's a kind of it's it's, you know, going directly with tasks to junior members of the team who I might not interact with. So I'm like, OK, I haven't heard from so and so for a while. So I'm going to give them something to do for me. So, you know, work based chat. Um, social-based chat, how are you doing, how are you getting on, use WhatsApp, you know, phone them, use Zoom calls. There's still lots of different mediums by which you can you can link with people. And, and again, we've used that with agencies. Our agencies are very good that you kind of have, we have WhatsApp as a really quick turnaround, you know, for urgent stuff. We have email for slower, more strategic things. You know, you pick up the phone, it is absolutely, I need to speak to you right now. So actually some of the ways we've engaged with our good agencies over the years have actually enabled me to, to really understand how I can keep talking to people in a different way and actually get that kind of social side as well and, and keep and keep that coaching going I found that 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 does work that does work really well um, as much as you can and then you can also pick up I think you can pick up where people are struggling as well um, so there was a, a young lady in my team who I've got much closer to over this period she was really struggling working at home so actually in the end we arranged to have, have you know to have a meetup and as our office starts opening we you know she came into the office a little bit earlier than some others so she could have that, that human interaction so I think always you know think really hard about what tools there are available to you to connect with people um it's just us kind of ancient fogies who are used to used to sitting with each other in a meeting room in a coffee cup actually you know, young people are very used to interacting digitally with, with their with their friends um, and so i think we need to tap into that rather than it, it, you know expecting the world to come up with a, a new solution i think i think those are great ideas you know from rebecca and, and uh you know definitely really really good behaviors there is some sort of early research that i've sort of seen here uh which shows that that teams that have have been quite effective at porting to online work where they've already had quite strong bonds uh and they've already had that sort of human interaction but there's a real challenge in terms of onboarding and bringing new talent in or reforming teams and and and, and restructuring teams and, and then then it becomes sort of very challenging uh, and also, you know, the ability to, you know, for, for, for certainly for new people, but even existing people moving within an organization to, to have recognition, to be seen, to, uh, you know, for their skills and, and values, you know, to be, uh, you know, to be seen across the organization. We've, uh, some other tactics we've been starting to use is to get some uh, different staff to chair different meetings, for instance, not always be chaired by the manager or the boss, but try and rotate that just to try and build the visibility of people that might otherwise not have that visibility across the organization. But I think as time goes on, this could be one of these things that becomes much more of a challenge, you know, and, and a team that knows each other and has already worked well together face-to-face, great, they can spend a few months, you know, sort of talking online like we are now. But if they don't know each other and they haven't got any reference point, and so many of those uh, online conversations become very transactional, what you miss out is the so the socializing conversations, how's your kids, what did you do at the weekend? Did you see that last night? If you're missing out all that and the relationships become built on 
on business transactions only, then over time those bonds and the tightness of those teams start to start to weaken as well. And that's another big challenge. I just want to bring in a question because we are massively overrunning, but I did promise we would include some questions from, from the audience. I've got one here. So it's, it's building on this current conversation, as they said. This is from Billy McKenna. Does the current economic stroke health environment make you think you'll use agencies more or less, i.e. more or less outsourcing? Rebecca, do you want to take that? I will always use um, a PR agency because I think they're, it's always something that I would, I mean, we've got a very good, strong in-house PR people as well, but actually I'd always use someone. I think their um, breadth of uh, contacts and knowledge in different areas would mean to be the one that would be very inassailable in my in my in my book and also they're you know communications experts um I, I, if a pr agency is, is worth its salt is already good at communicating um through a number of channels and so this shouldn't impact in, impact them at all and i think if a client feels that actually they've seen some drop in service during during covid i think one has to understand that people will you know individually have challenges um and be respectful of those but as an agency as a whole should be able to adapt to this i would hope fairly strongly Okay, Um, I'm conscious of time. I've got one more question for you all. But before we do that, as I promised at the start, it's competition time. We've uh, mentioned Tom's book a couple of times during this this chat. He's uh, very kindly given us a copy to give away. It's Future Proof Your Business. Um, So one lucky viewer or or listener, obviously. Uh, To be in with a chance of winning, you'll need to ensure you are following the C-Suite podcast on any of our social media channels. Uh, Go to c-suitepodcast.com, click on the competition prize draw link at the top of the page where you will need to answer this question question that Tom is going to set. Over to you, Tom. So how many traits did I say there were of an athletic organisation? That's how many traits did I say there were of an athletic organisation? There you go. Very uh, simple. Um, so remember, follow us on social, enter via the website, terms and conditions apply, etc, etc, all linked from the competition page. Uh, right. Finishing off, um, what does the future hold? So our partners at uh, the PRCA, uh, the par- our partners for this episode, um, so just a few weeks ago in June, they released the findings of a survey of agency and in-house leaders. Um, I actually read about this on PR Week and it found that the majority of respondents favoured a return to office life, but that 42% were either reluctant or um, you know had mixed feelings about it and so in in that article that I was reading there were a couple of comments and I just want to read through these and then I'm going to come to to you guys for your response one one agency head uh, said they expect everyone to be back by September and whilst they will um, allow more flexible hours and some days working from home uh, they felt it important to get that energy back for their teams Uh, then on the flip side others reported that younger members of the team had moved back to their parents homes outside of the cities and so in some cases uh, given up the the leases on rented flats and uh, so are slow or reluctant to resume city-based working routines and others even had a fear of using um, public transport so what are you guys honestly think we'll see moving forward rebecca um you've just moved into you know your your lovely shiny new offices in in central london you gave me a virtual tour on on your laptop the other day um are you expecting people to make full use of that of that great space yeah so we're in the the process of moving between um old and new offices in in london at the moment and we've already seen some people, you know, really keen to to come back. Actually, it's quite funny while I'm while I'm sitting here um, in the meeting with the glass door, and people keep walking past, going like, like this at me, and I'm like, yeah, you know, kind of thing. I think we should put a post-it note on the door. And um, people do like that that human interaction, and I think you know, uh, with safety procedures in place, then people are comfortable at 
comfortable at coming back. But I think there'll always be continue to be flexibility where people will, will work from home as well. And I kind of see that that kind of hybrid hybrid model, um, perhaps over-indexing towards the digital, um, maintained permanently. Jeremy, what's your thoughts? I think with an organisation like the bank, uh, we we probably will, by and large, move back to office-based working, the, the, the building and the physical you know, manifestation of the bank and, and where we are in Washington, D.C. and in every country in the world. And, 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 and that physical presence is probably seen as being important. And we're, we're, we're quite a conservative organization. Uh, I think what it will do medium term is is certainly drive forward more flexible home uh, working, you know, more regular home based working. Hopefully managers will uh, uh, will will reflect that this has been quite a productive time uh, and they will take a different attitude and hopefully we'll manage to maintain some of the, the stronger inclusion that we've seen and be creative in, in in some of the things we have learned over the last few months. Great. Tom, last word with yourself on this? Yeah, definitely the trend towards remote working is going to accelerate, but the short term, I think we're going to see quite a rapid snap back to old ways of working, while companies that don't have Octopus's culture work out those challenges. How do we do this well? How do we manage people remotely? How do we onboard people and maintain that sort of pastoral care role over our employees? All of those things need working out before we can make that wholesale shift to more remote work. Tremendous. I just want to thank my guests. Uh, so once again, uh, Jeremy Hillman, Rebecca Dib Simkin and uh, Tom Cheesewright. Uh, thanks also obviously to the uh, team at the PRCA for inviting me to host this session. Uh, if you want more information on their COVID-19 task force, all the details are linked from their website at prca.org.uk. In the meantime, we hope you've uh, got a lot out of this episode. Uh, we'd love to hear any comments you may have on this whole topic area of hybrid working. Uh, you can do that by contributing to the discussion and all the links to all our social channels are on the top of our website at csuitepodcast.com. So please do uh, contribute via the Facebook page, Twitter feed or LinkedIn and Instagram pages. Also on the website, uh, you'll find all the previous shows and supporting show notes, plus links to where you can subscribe for automatic downloads of each episode via your favourite podcast app. And if you enjoyed uh, what you've heard uh, please do give us a positive rating and review uh, finally if you want to get in touch with the show you can do that via the contact form on the website as well you can connect with me on twitter using at ross goldsmith or you can find me on linkedin but for now thanks for listening and indeed uh, watching this episode and uh, goodbye goodbye